Welcome to the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male advocate, and black male studies scholar. In the program, we examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. Our goal is to remind people of black men's humanity. Call in after a half hour to the show at 310-928-7733. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Onyx Report with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Uh, it is January 15th, uh, so we will be doing um, two shows. I want to alert you guys to a, a, a change in format. Uh, so we have uh, the 15th today is our second show of the month. On alternate Wednesdays, you can find me doing a live show uh, video show on YouTube. You can find my YouTube account. Just look for Dr. T. Hassan Johnson um, and, and make sure you subscribe, hit the, the bell, uh, and you will be alerted to when I do my live shows. Those will be alternate second and fourth uh, Wednesdays. So every week you can check in with the, uh, the Onyx report uh, there. So uh, to jump in today, we have a great show. We have a, a great guest um, uh, who's a station mate of mine. I've been on his show a couple of different times, as a matter of fact. He's also here on Interlight uh, Radio, and um, I'm going to introduce him in a moment, and we'll have a conversation about a topic I think that's, that's really crucial, especially in 2020, uh, in regard to black men and boys, and that is how we define happiness and what that means. Uh, but as you know, for those who have been who have been following me for a minute, you know I start the show uh, with some current events, and I do have a, a few, so I will try and jump in here uh, and get through them because I think these are important to know about. The first of which, and I want to start on a positive, is about uh, uh, Brian, Attorney Brian Stevenson. Uh, he's the author of the book that inspired the film Just Mercy, that's currently out in theaters. And the article I want to point you to is on people.com. It's called All About Just Mercy, Mer Just Mercy's Brian Stevenson, the lawyer who has overturned 135 death row convictions. This is a brother who is dedicated to his craft, and the craft is justice. Uh, uh, he uses that via the law, of course, but he, the film even depicts him as a really a dedicated uh, black male lawyer. And so I, I start with him. Because those of you who follow me on social media know that in the last couple months, I've, I've started a hashtag, actually started a couple. One is uh, Sacred Black Masculine. And the reason I started the hashtag Sacred Black Masculine was to highlight what is often uh, buried under the rug, swept under the rug in regard to black men. And that is that we do have examples of, of humanity, of purity, of goodness, of justice. And those, those examples tend to be swept under the rug. Uh, and there's a hyper kind of emphasis, emphasis both by the media and by consumers to only, you know, focus on the negative. So the film Just Mercy, well acted uh, by Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx and a number of others. They did a beautiful job. The story is is based on the book by Stevenson, although, it, you know, it looks like the film story itself was written um, by an Asian and a white guy. Uh, nonetheless, it's still an important movie to see. Uh, I had not actually had a chance to read the book, but a good colleague of mine had, and he said that the role played by um, the actress who also plays Captain Marvel, Brie, I think that's her name, um, uh, that that, I'm sorry, I'm sorry? Brie Larson. Brie Larson, thank you. 
uh, it, it didn't look like that character was very pronounced in the book, according to a, a trusted colleague. So um, look into that for those who are interested. But nevertheless, uh, definitely, you know, focus on Brian Stevenson's work and see how you can support him. Check the article out. Uh, and also support the hashtag Sacred Black Masculine. I also created Black Fathers Play, hashtag Black Fathers Play. So I have some posts up where you actually see Black fathers spending time with their sons. And there's documented research to suggest that Black men actually engage their children uh, more than other racial groups. Uh, so the hashtag is only reflective of what's happening, even though it's not something we immediately associate with Black men. Uh, next one up, next article up is uh, on the sexual abuse allegations against a Sarasota pastor that goes back decades. This is on TampaBay.com, uh, and you can find it. It's an article about Bishop Henry Lee Porter, 72 years old, facing two counts of capital sexual battery of children under 12. Apparently, he had been molesting uh, young boys, most particularly, and uh, he served as pastor for 45 odd years. Uh, the reason I bring this up is not only to inform you. You know, because I don't I don't at all deny that black men, you know, it, it are involved in all kinds of situations or are the, the aggressors as well as the victims. But the reason most of my media focuses on the positive in regard to black males is there's already plenty of, of, of stage room for the negative. That's actually where the conversation starts. So you'll notice that I tend to overemphasize the positive, not because I'm ignoring the existence of the negative, but because it already has quite a bit uh, out there. And, and that's also why I don't generally do a whole lot uh, of, of information on black women, because, again, or, or women in general, there's already plenty of, of stage room for that. There's just not a lot in regard to, you know, kind of conversations about black men that I think need to be had. Now, I, I mentioned Henry Lee Porter because you do have this pastor who's abused his his position, his authority and taken advantage of scores of boys over the decade. And the title of the article is about the sexual abuse allegations and, and, you know, usually you'll find article titles that involve the term rape. I contrast that with another article on ColoTV.com about a Reno woman, Lori Wilson, 48 years old, who apparently was sentenced to three months in jail for having sex with her 16-year-old foster son. And we don't know how far back those that interaction goes, but I frequently do report on women who are found to have committed acts of rape. And the reason I do so is because you'll notice that none of the titles actually involve the term rape, not even sexual assault. The overwhelming use of terminology in these articles is that they had sex. Um, you know, they had sex with students. They had sex with foster children. They had, and, and so the term rape is not used. Sexual abuse is not used. Abuse at all is generally not used. And so I contrast the two stories to kind of show you how you know black men and men in general are often depicted in regard to sexual allegations but women are always kind of presented with an air of plausible deniability that uh, even when sentenced is a problem and the sentencing is extremely light she got three months um, so imagine a 48 year old male having sex with his foster daughter uh, and getting three months and not even having the term sexual abuse or rape used in the title all right, so that kind of reporting ends up being a problem. Next up, we have an article that you can find on themarshallproject.org entitled How We Investigate Mississippi's Modern Day Debtors Prisons Program. 
that affected hundreds of poor workers. The article is written by Anna Wolf and Michelle Liu, and it says it starts out with the tip we got at, a Miss at Mississippi today seemed a little unlikely. A woman in state prison was also working at McDonald's and not voluntarily. Sure enough, we found Dixie D'Angelo, a woman with court ordered debts of $5,000 because she damaged a friend's car. She'd been sentenced to something called a restitution center where she worked four different restaurant jobs to try and earn enough to pay off her debts and go and get out of jail. So what we have is the, 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 you know, the kind of use of the old idea of the debtor's prison. And if this is precedent for poor black folk, especially women, it would go hand in hand with black male incarceration in a very dangerous and detrimental way. So look up the marshallproject.org, uh, kind of follow it a little bit, see what you can find about it, uh, because that's a dangerous precedent, uh, particularly for poor people who are coming out of generations of lack and underdevelopment. Uh, also, we have um, thanks to NBCNews.com. Jay Z goes to bat for Mississippi prisoners and files federal lawsuit. The rap mogul sued the head of the Mississippi Department of Corrections and the warden of the state penitentiary Tuesday on behalf of 29 prisoners who say the two officials have done nothing to stop the violence that's left five inmates dead in the past two weeks. Um, says the deaths are a direct result of Mississippi's utter disregard for the people it has incarcerated and their constitutional rights. You can find pictures of the prison, their unlivable conditions, um, you know, rampant, uh, you know, um, uh, just, you know, mold, uh, lack of cleanliness. It's, it's just the conditions are ridiculous. The prisoners are freezing. It is inhumane. If you actually get to see the pictures, uh, I suggest you gear, you, you gear yourself up before you do. Um, I appreciate that Jay-Z is taking this role, but again, I've said this before, much of the time in black America, we end up treating our celebrities as government uh, because we often don't find government uh, as accessible and useful in defending our rights. So uh, shout out to him for supporting that, um, but also look into what's happening to many of these prisoners in Mississippi. And this is not just in Mississippi, this is just where the article kind of allowed us to kind of step in on what's happening. Um, uh, there's also an article on, on Amny, A-M-N-Y dot com about six Rikers Island corrections officers indicted for smuggling drugs into jail. Um, you can look into that article. This is also emblematic of something that I think has been happening on a wide level. This is allegedly, um, let me see, uh, six New York City corrections officers found themselves in handcuffs Tuesday for drug smuggle smuggling on Rikers Island. The alleged dirty half dozen were among 21 individuals indicted for the scheme to import and distribute marijuana, synthetic marijuana, or K2, and the narcotic suboxone, I, I might have pronounced that wrong, uh, into jail facilities on the island since early 2019. So look into that, amni.com. Um, let's see, we have a story coming out of Oakland where sheriff's deputies with guns drawn have evicted homeless moms from the Oakland home. Um, this is on KTVU.com. Uh, this has been all over the internet. So if you haven't seen it, definitely look into it. I want to give a special shout out to my boy, Denmark, uh, one of the brothers out there providing security to those black women. Um, and uh, usually those brothers are fairly unsung and, and deserve to be acknowledged. He's been doing this for quite a while. Uh, and you have those brothers out there protecting activists as well as participating in their own activism on behalf of the black community. So uh, look into that article if you're not familiar. Uh, let me see. Uh, there's an article up uh, that is on flip.it. 
slash S2CXMV. Um, I know that one's difficult. I guess that's the shortened URL that I could find, but it's on black women facing a widening kin gap. And the article is basically about how black women by 2060 will find themselves without very much kin. And the reason I mention this article is that uh, part of the problem with it, and those of you on, again, who follow me on Facebook know my concerns about this, I've written on it, is that articles such as these exacerbate the problem by, by really, you know, ignoring the, the, the elephant in the room. Right. So the article is about black women who are, will be alone in 2060 and so forth in terms of without being without kin. But what the article overlooks is that the reason that they're alone is mainly because black men don't live as long. Uh, we're dying you know, early. I've talked about this in terms of the 10 leading causes of death and how black male deaths are significantly higher, even while still in the womb, believe it or not. But uh, definitely uh, before the age of 65, black men die in much higher numbers um, than black women. And it's generally age-related conditions that we tend to find black women dying of. And I don't point this out as a negative to black women. I point this out, I usually bring up gender to point out that this bifurcated reality between black men and black women suggests that some problems are not just black problems. They are distinctly black male problems and we need to be unapologetic in looking at that. Um, so uh, dig into that if you're, if you're interested. I also have a post up on that where I go into more detail with the National Academy of Sciences and point out the data specific to that. Um, let's see, uh, I posted a couple weeks ago on the 1.5 million black males missing. And one of the responses I got on social media was uh, the frustration that the 1.5 million because it was so much larger than the articles going around about the 64,000 missing black females that somehow there was something wrong with that and, and, and that I needed to change the subject or shift the number. And the reason I bring this up is because nobody should be able to tell you or dictate the terms of the conversation when it comes to what's happening with black males because they're uncomfortable with it for whatever reason. Uh, there are 1.5 million black miss males missing due to a number of different conditions. And I really don't think that even includes those that are missing because they've been kidnapped and taken uh, and put uh, forcibly into the sex trade or the labor forced labor industry. And I'm not even talking about incarceration. Um, those things need to be spoken up full throatedly and they need to be spoken about unapologetically, despite what others comfort zone is uh, in regard to that kind of thing. So uh, again, I have a post up about that. Um, and lastly, um, I noticed that a brother uh, of mine on Facebook, uh, I won't reveal his name or any inside information, but he posted in a private chat about how uh, frustrated he was about how much money uh, it was said that he needed to have and how he needed to look in order to be considered attractive. So this is a blog piece I wrote some, some I think a couple of years ago now it's called How Big is Too Big, When is Too Much Too Much? And basically what I point out in there is that, you know, you hear constantly about men being told they need to have an exceptionally large income, an ex you know, a, a number of college degrees, they need to be over six feet or six feet two, and they need to have, uh, you know, maybe even a very large penis. So I went to the data because that's what I do. You know, I try to emphasize that. So I told him, uh, the, you know, in the blog piece I wrote, I wrote that 3.9% uh, of the male human population are over six foot two, right? Only 3.9%. So if you're told that you need to be taller than 6.2, don't sweat about it because there aren't that many people. Um, also that 10% of black folk 
earn over 89000 a year, and that's by household before taxes. So really, if you're talking about you know, more than 100,000, 112, you're really talking about 5% roughly. So at the end of the day, you know, that's already going to be an issue. Um, I pointed this out uh, on, you know, social media as well, that I've updated the numbers in terms of degrees conferred by race and sex. I have a chart that I use um, from 1976 to 2017. Um, black males have gotten half the degrees that black women have. I've included certificates and associate degrees in this. So there's about 6 million um, degrees that black women have gotten. Black males have gotten about 3 million. Um, and that is in contrast, of course, to white men who've gotten about close to 22 million and white women who've gotten nearly 30 million. So black males find themselves on the bottom of that and there's not a lot of us that have in that respect. And then lastly, in regard to penis size, uh, I point out that the average size for an erect penis, according to the data, is about 14.2 centimeters or 5.6 inches. So what's my point? My point is, if someone tells you you need to be over 6'2", make over uh, six figures, uh, you need to have several college degrees, and you need to have a 12-inch penis, uh, let them go search for what they're looking for, because based on the data, they've already put themselves in a population where they're looking for a fraction of a fraction. Um, so don't lose any sleep over that, fellas. Just some useful information to hope, hopefully help you kind of regain your center. All right. So finally, moving on, I'd like to welcome my station mate. Um, this is my brother, Sawa. He's a spiritual teacher, mentor, life coach, author, energetic healer, lecturer, and yoga instructor alumni of the Aquarian Spiritual Center. This is where he and I met back in, oh man, what, 95? Probably about 95, 96. Um, I think 95. Anyway, um, studied ancient wisdom of various spiritual philosophies for over 25 years as an ardent devotee of Sri Sri Amritananda Mai Devi. Did I pronounce that right? That's right. Okay. I was about to turn that over to you real quick, but I tripped into it. Uh, he's certified Reiki and hypnotherapist and provides spiritual, personal, and relationship coaching services. Sarah is an ordained priest of the Sacred Order of the Sons of Ra. So his, his admirers appreciate his humble approach, unique ability to assist others to remember who they really are and learn how to live in the present. He relates using a combination of ancient wisdom, life experience, formal education, and dedication to life purpose. He illustrates in his message the ease at which individuals can reach their goals when they learn to free themselves from attachment and surrender to the universal energy within themselves. Um, this allows us to live our lives based upon self-inspired vision, belief, and purpose. He conducts weekly spiritual classes. I think he's going to get back to doing so on conference calls on Wednesday nights. He's an author of The Book of Light, Daily Words of Inspiration to Brighten Your Day, and host of Journey into Self every first and third Tuesday, 7.30 Pacific, 9.30 Central, 10.30 Eastern. And you can find him on www.sa-ra. Org. So www.sara.org. Uh, welcome to the Onyx Report, brother. Uh, thank you, brother. Your check is in the mail for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, now I would I would interview you about um, your 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 degree in 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 the funk, but I don't think we have enough time to really get into the details of that. So. The reason uh, I wanted to talk to you today is, is because of your unique take on ideas like happiness. But before we get to that, as usual, I like to give people a sense of who you are, who my guest is, where they've come from, how they got to where they are. So if we could start, tell us about where you're from. 
and 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 who Sarah is. All right, I'll do that. I just wanted to make a, a quick observation about the information that you shared in your introduction. <laughs> <laughs> From what you elucidated, um, and, and I'll just have to say, I appreciate the sharing of this. <laughs> Wisdom and knowledge from the uh, the black male advocate. So <laughs> you are the one that gave me that term. I got to put that out there. <laughs> Absolutely, but it sounds like a lot of sisters are going to be alone based upon the uh, that data that you shared. Yeah, you gotta you gotta open up and engage people for who they are. Exactly. Yeah. So so tell us about yourself, man. Where are you from? I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Okay. The, which was interesting because, for one, Chicago, Illinois, I was born on the South Side. Chicago, Illinois is a place that is and has always been quite segregated. Mm -hmm. Therefore, in my early upbringing, there was a significant time. Well, actually, yeah, there was a significant time where I had never even encountered a white person, mm. which shaped my consciousness. In addition to the fact that my father was in the Nation of Islam, mm -hmm. which afforded me the opportunity to attend Temple Number Three and hear the philosophy of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad which also had a significant impact on shaping my consciousness in an early age. No doubt. Has, you know, continued to shape my consciousness into the present moment. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Okay. Um, you're, you're, okay, so you, you, you started to grow up, you grew up in Chicago, you started out at the Nation, in the Nation of Islam schools, Tell us about what, what happened from there, educationally, uh, athletically, what, what, what happened? Well, a couple things. So from my exposure to hearing the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad developed in me a strong sense of who I am as a black person, as a black man. He, of course, taught that the black man is the original man, that black people the original people of the planet, that black people are the ones who contributed the arts and sciences and the wisdom teachings throughout the world. And of course he taught that as a result, black people being the original people are our superior. So that was the frame of reference from which I started. Mm -hmm. I learned to read in an extremely early age. My parents would teach me how to pronounce the alphabet, and I would end up extrapolating the sounds from each of the letters and then trying to pronounce words on my own. I ended up learning because when they corrected me if I was wrong, I would remember it. And so after a short period of time, I was able to, to read by just reading billboards and anything. I would try to read everything that I came across. And so I ended up learning how to read that way 
to the extent that I learned, I knew how to read before I even went into nursery school. Mm -hmm. So then I started reading. Okay. And so I read the the Muhammad speaks, which was the precursor to the to the final call, which you know also further shaped my my consciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, as a child, from an athletic standpoint, I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house when my parents went to work. My grandmother was a, an ardent baseball fan and always watched baseball when she wasn't watching her stories. Mm-hmm. Mine too, for that matter. <laughs> Now, in Chicago, however, the stadium in which the Chicago Cubs played didn't have lights. So despite the fact that I lived on the South Side, as did my grandmother, where you're supposed to be a White Sox fan, she didn't care. She was equally rooted for the Cubs and the White Sox because the Cubs were always on. TV in the daytime because they didn't have lights at Wrigley Field at that time. So I became a Cubs fan and of course, you know, I, I developed a deep and abiding love for baseball which continues to this day. So when I wasn't watching baseball, I was playing baseball. Mm-hmm. And okay. I play baseball still to this day. That's right. So when did you move out to California? So my parents got divorced, I think, in in 1966, or actually they got separated, which ended up resulting in my mother moving me and my sister out here to California, which was an interesting experience in that when I ended up going to school, it was it was complete culture shock. My mother had us living in... Silmar with my aunt, which at that time was primarily white. So I would encounter white people uh, for the first, essentially the first time. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, an extreme shock. But because of the fact that I grew up with the perspective that the black man was superior, that black people were superior. It didn't affect me the way it would have affected black people who didn't come from that type of perspective. So I always looked at myself as, I continue to look at myself as being superior. And so when people would say and call me the N-word, I thought it was just out of their ignorance and not knowing how to pronounce the word Negro. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh-huh. And I knew that I could I could read and they couldn't. I would read. I read the whole semester full of books when I first went to school. Within the first three weeks of school, and didn't you know? And I I had read everything that there was to read. Mm. You know, while everyone else was like struggling to read the first book. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. You continued to play baseball. Um, 
Is that did you now did you end up going to school playing baseball in terms of, of college? I didn't play baseball at the college that I attended because we had a very racist head coach who only allowed two black people on the baseball team. Wow. But I did play in this collegiate summer league where I competed against college ball players, AAA baseball players. I also played in this scout league, which was called the Southern California Baseball Association, where the scouts ran the teams. From that, I ended up playing with the, getting seen by the California, being California Angels, and ended up playing in their organization for some time. Okay. Okay. Now, what what ended up being your chosen profession in terms of that? Well, so I went to Cal State Northridge where initially I majored in physical education because I felt like I was going to play baseball and then if I didn't play baseball, then I'd be a baseball coach. That's what I thought. I ended up breaking my ankle and had to make the decision as to whether or not I would take off the time to dedicate myself to getting back in shape so that I could pursue a baseball career or whether I would hunker down and focus in on my, my studies, given that the baseball career would is not certain. So it ended up being that after making that assessment and noticing how difficult the physical education classes were, and then looking at the return on investment and looking at the salaries that baseball coaches and instructors or physical ed teachers would receive, it didn't seem like the return on investment would be worth it. You know, for for the type of study I would have to put in to get to get that degree. So, at that point, I decided that I would change my major to a business major. And then, as I evaluated the different options in the business major, I I determined that the best fit for me would would be a double major in finance and economics, which ended up leading to uh, my current occupation as a bank examiner. I see a lot of people don't seem to know that, but uh, when you really look at the data from the National Center for Education Statistics, Educational Statistics, um, black males tend to go into business more than any other field uh, in undergrad. Um, and when you get to like the doctoral level, they tend to go into either medicine or law. So so black men go into very practical fields of study, despite how some people tend to think that we don't. So you seem to be an example of that as well. You went into business and now you, you, you know, went, went business and finance and now you're a bank examiner. Um, that's powerful. So part of the reason that I wanted to have this conversation with you about your a particular approach to not only happiness, but spirituality as a whole is because one of the things I'm hearing in the last few years is, you know, black men really trying to define 
happiness, trying to find a way to uh, not only express themselves, but uh, but also you know find find space to be accepted, uh, to be treated well, to be appreciated. And so there's all kinds of conversations on the internet about what what to do to find that kind of happiness. You know, I'm hearing people talking about getting your passport, traveling to other countries. You know, I'm hearing people talking about becoming entrepreneurs. There's all kinds of different examples of what people are doing to find and be happy. And this is particularly important for black men because, you know, when you look at the history, you know, particularly for African-American men, what you see is a history fraught with difficulty, with, with, with stress, with, you know, all kinds of issues that send us to an early grave. It's not accidental that we have a short lifespan compared to other groups, including our own women, right? So in that search for happiness, though, uh, a lot of it is on what I can buy or where I can go. Mm. Now, please describe your spiritual approach and, and, and then, you know, we can get into how you would approach happiness or contentment. Okay. First of all, what I would share with the audience is that the search for happiness is as a result of the fact that we as spiritual beings are coming from the spiritual realm wherein we have a connection to the all. We have a connection to the divine because that's what we are. Upon being born into the physical realm, the conscious awareness of that connection becomes lost. And then when we begin experiencing the physical realm, what we're looking for is to be able to reestablish that connection. That's the, the desire for happiness. That's what we're looking for. We're looking to be able to establish our connection with the divine, which is the source of eternal happiness and joy but we don't know that that's what we're looking for we're just we just know that we want to find happiness but we don't know where to find it which ends up resulting in us looking at it in in anything that we can find it and so any experience that we have that results in happiness, we feel like we need to continue to pursue that. Or if we've been conditioned in any way, which we are very much conditioned, to believe that certain things, certain accomplishments, certain acquisitions will lead to happiness, then we will go throughout our lives in pursuit of those things under the illusion that upon attaining them, we will find happiness. Well, as a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's extremely pronounced because um, I'm born in the 70s, child in the 80s, you know, young adult in the 90s, right? So I grew up with all of that 80s and 90s R&B music. I grew up with the movies and the films. You know, um, I was told that happiness would be, would be, you know, when I found the woman, 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and then, you know, Cosby told me that when I got my degrees that I would, you know, I would be successful and that I could own a brownstone with multiple stories and, I, you know, I can marry a lawyer and that was it, right? It, it, happiness came in terms of the media that groomed me and my generation. Happiness was to be found in who I mated with and what accomplishments I made. And one of the things I tended to find was that even if I was one of the lucky few who accomplished what I was setting out to do, I didn't feel the way I thought I was supposed to. Uh, My relationships didn't quite work the way they were supposed to. And even when they kind of did, I didn't feel the way I thought I would feel. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And now I have students that graduate for the small percentage that actually do make it through and graduate with their degrees who expect to be the next big thing in whatever capacity you know, who four years later are working at Target. And I've had number students call me, uh, not even just students, but I, I've had numbers uh, email me, reach out to me and, and tell me they're on the verge of suicide. I talked about this on my last show. Um, what would you say about that entire process of growing up, believing that happiness is a certain kind of set of things and then dealing with the frustration of what that means, whether you achieve it or not? As you and I have talked about the what those experiences create, what those influences create, what the programming, if you will, creates is a expectation, which is a key word, an expectation that that those things will result in happiness. Mm-hmm. We know that from our spiritual study that expectations, however, are the source of disappointment mm-hmm. because what they do is create a create attachments in us which are based upon the illusion that they will result in happiness. And so invariably since it is impossible for any of those things, which are things that exist outside of ourselves, which are not the sources of any kind of eternal happiness, any kind of happiness that that lasts, then we end up being extremely disappointed because we have gone through the majority of our lives with the expectation that the attainment of these things, accomplishments, will result in happiness. And so then when, we real, when we've attained those things, achieved those objectives that we have set out with the expectation of happiness, then there's a deep sense of disappointment because of all the effort that we've exerted into a, attaining those goals. Now, did you experience that? Because I I can imagine as a as a bank examiner, you know, you're doing all right. Were you, did you, you know, were you happy? You know, you you you'd achieved your goals. You know, you're accomplished. You're doing your thing. Did did you come to grips with this moment where you found that happiness, you know, was more elusive than you thought, or was this something you always kind of understood? To be honest with you, brother Hassan. I never really bought into the the illusion 
that those things would bring me happiness. The only thing that may have come close to that was I did have a strong attachment to having an ideal relationship. And I felt like if I had the ideal relationship, I didn't believe that it would make me happy, but I wanted it and felt like I would I would get some happiness from it. Mm-hmm. That distinction makes sense. So I didn't think that it was the source of happiness, but I really wanted it because I felt like I would get some happiness from it. Well, you were ahead of me, man, because I think I was... I think between Apollonia and Claire Huxtable, I was I, I was I was kind of had some expectation that I would meet someone like that. So you were ahead of me. Well, that's was, not to say that I didn't want because uh, <laughs> I had pictures of vanity <laughs> hung uh-huh. up in my room as a as a child, along with uh, with Jane Kennedy and you know other other beauties. So mm-hmm. um, and I have. Uh, had experiences where you know I've had relationships with very very beautiful women but I also paid attention to the to my experiences with them and so I came to the conclusion early on that it was not going to bring me happiness mm-hmm. okay so so expectation as the source of of strain, of difficulty, of, of of unhappiness. Talk a little bit about why. What what is the problem with expectation? Because we're taught that you know you need to you need to focus, you need to plan, you need to perceive a goal, you need to expect to reach it. What what is the problem with expectation? Well, so I think there's a distinction to be made between planning, mm-hmm. visualizing, and projecting what we want versus the uh, expectation. And I think so the expectation is that or the problem with expectation is that when we're in expectation, we're trying to dictate how it comes. Mm -hmm. Right? Because the the, the important thing that we need to recognize is that what we're really beyond the the thing that we've placed the expectation on what we really want is the happiness mm-hmm. so it's not so much the the object that we're placing it on we want the feeling that we're going to get from it mm-hmm. right but The problem is is that whatever feeling that we get from it ends up being temporary. But we think that it's going to be a lasting thing. What what do people do, though? That ends up being unrealistic. Go ahead. So what what do people do when they find that the things that that, that they're often striving for make them only temporarily happy? They they give them a momentary bliss. Like, what, what do you notice that people tend to do well, they'll they'll feel like well maybe it was the wrong one, you know. Mm-hmm. So in relations to to relationships, then 
the conclusion would be that, okay, well, obviously I found the wrong person. So if I find the right person, then I'll find happiness or everything will fall into place. Yeah. Think fall into place if I just find the right, right person. Mm -hmm. Um, this house isn't big enough. You know, I need a, mm -hmm. I need a bigger house. If I just get the bigger house, maybe that'll make me happy. Mm -hmm. Or I need a nicer car or a nicer job. Right. right. And so it becomes attachment ends up becoming like a drug, right? To where you, you feel a sense of high from the achievement of it, the attainment of it. But then we realize that it didn't last. And so we seek more. Well, what's interesting about that too, though, is is as men, one of the things that we we find ourselves responsible for is other people's happiness too, mm. right? So, so you know, when we think about, okay, I want to be, you know, this person's lover or husband, or, you know, I'm going to have kids. It's acceptable for us to become responsible for buying someone else that house or or helping someone else achieve whatever it is that, that will make them happy. But we are told that that will in turn make us happy. So it's it, it, it's it's all. So it's not even just the things we desire. It's it's how our desires can tie us into this idea that we're supposed to help other people meet their desires, and that will make both of us happy. It, 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 can you speak on that a little? Uh, okay, brother. Uh, that one's that that's programming for one, and mm -hmm. that's a programming that does does a couple things um, it creates again an unrealistic expectation and burden on men and, and you know since we were on the show with the black male advocate it places a, <laughs> a, an extreme burden on the black men black man because of the the statistics that you shared at the opening of, of the show about the the income disparity that exists for black males mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so as you were discussing what the requirements that our women have of us then it places if we believe that it is our responsibility to make them happy, then it becomes an almost an insurmountable goal for both. Mm -hmm. So it creates an, an unrealistic expectation and demand on the part of the women. And it ends up being a carrot that you can never reach as a man. Mm -hmm. And so that's just from a, a social an economic perspective where it creates unrealistic expectation. Okay. But beyond that, from a spiritual standpoint, it is impossible. No one can make another person happy. It is not the responsibility for another person to make another person happy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now I want you to wait. I want I want you to hold right there for a second because yep. that's that's something that I really want to put an exclamation point on, particularly for black males of all ages. 
for young men who are conceptualizing their manhood, for men who are who are trying to reach expectations that they and others have of them as men, that what you just said was was incredibly important. If it's not possible to make somebody happy, can that not be interpreted as a liberatory thing? Can that set me free? If I can actually realize, it, not only is it not my job to make someone happy, it's not possible. It's not possible. So if it's not possible, can that take a weight off my chest? You understand what I'm saying? Well, it certainly can take a weight off your chest because the part that is important to focus on is that it is our responsibility to attain our own happiness. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when we realize that that is really our only true responsibility, then yeah, absolutely is liberating because you, it is only possible for one to, to attain happiness for themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you're dealing with someone who expects you to make them happy and they're always upset that you haven't, uh, and I'm speaking particularly to men that may find themselves in these situations, regardless of the relationship, because this can happen at work. This can happen. You know, it doesn't even have to be just an intimate relationship. It can happen in all kinds of ways. You're saying you could actually set yourself free of that stress by just accepting the fact that it ain't possible anyway. Well, absolutely, I do. And so I don't engage with people who expect me to make them happy. Mm. And And how do you... What's, what's one of the easiest ways to determine very early on if you're dealing with someone like that? So let's, 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 let's say I'm, I'm out on a date. It's a blind date. Someone else hooked me up with it. Friend, a friend of a friend. We, we, you know, she and I get together. We sit down for dinner for the first time. How can I assess what I'm dealing with and, and how to avoid that? Pay attention to their language. Okay. As you're listening to them, and <laughs> it's important for a man to listen to a woman, so do that. Right? So listen. Okay. As you listen, listen to the type of words that they use. Okay. Listen to determine whether or not they are people who take responsibility for themselves. Hmm. Okay, or, what do you mean? Whether whether they acknowledge the fact that they are responsible for the results that they've had in their lives. Uh -oh. This determine whether or not they recognize that they have created the experiences that they've had in their lives. Okay. okay. This determine whether or not they recognize and understand that they are responsible for their happiness or whether or not they use victim language uh -oh. blame, take no responsibility for the circumstances that they find themselves in right okay. and so you can easily identify those things if you're paying attention and listen and so what's important for us to do is to make a point not to do is to have our desire be so strong that we don't hear 
that and are unable, therefore, to make a distinction about what that person's level of self-awareness is. Okay. Okay, and so sometimes we our desire is so strong that we make poor choices wanting to fit a square peg into a round hole and try to make someone fit the per- the type of person that we that we want. So. Well, I, I, I generally contend that black males have often been socialized to accept what's, what's presented, to adapt themselves to what's been presented, not really to screen or assess. And I've said this before on other shows or to even have a list of what it is they're looking for as a as a kind of compass you know, in terms of relationships, we tend to, you know, we tend to, to be told that in, in certain respects, you know, we need to adapt to what's presented. We, we need to, you know, accept what's there and be happy it's been presented to us at all. So you're saying that there's actually another way to go about that where I actually pay attention, but I pay attention for a purpose. I'm paying attention to what's being said to assess if this is something that I even need to engage in. Um, what would be an example of, of a red, a red flag? You know what I mean? Same scenario. You're at a dinner, you know, it's a, it's a first meeting. It's a blind date. What would be an example of a red flag? A red flag is when you hear someone, uh, constantly blaming, complaining about their circumstances and, uh, saying it's someone else's fault, whether it be something that they experienced at work or as they're talking about the relationships that they've had that they blame the failure of their relationships exclusively on their relationship partners they they acknowledge absolutely no responsibility or part in the failure of that relationship Uh, that they feel like there's nothing for them to improve upon that they notice no recurring patterns in the circumstances that they've had they haven't noticed that they are the constant and that if they you know if it seems as though their perspective is that it's just because all the people that they've encountered were were bad people and but it didn't have anything to do with their choices mm-hmm. it was just that you know all the men were no good and they're and they're looking for the right one right you know it's an interesting kind of programming that i think we've been subject to from from walt disney movies to the barbershop where it it to me seems common practice for men to take responsibility for other people's happiness and blame themselves when when that hasn't worked well. Well, sure. Right? So, I mean, everybody's heard the term "happy wife, happy life," right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I remember even older men used to tell me as a, as a you know a young boy again in the barbershop scenario, they would tell you you know if she's not happy, you need to you know this it's on you, right? The onus is on you to go figure it out, to go make her happy, to go. So you, so I think in many of these situations, when you describe hearing someone doing a lot of blaming, a lot of accusing, and this might even be your first conversation with this person. 
and you're listening to this, I think what men tend to do in many instances is to is to say, okay, well, I need to be the exception. I need to be the one that proves to her that uh, you know, one, men aren't like this, and I can make her happy. You're what's the, the what's the, the problem? Einstein in armor to come mm. and rip them. Yes, yes. What's wrong with that? Mm. What does that do over time? What that does is is gives them the opportunity to shift blame for their circumstances so they never grow. And it creates an undue and impossible burden on the man to do something that he cannot do, which is to make another individual happy. So it invariably is going to cause some great conflict if the if the woman thinks that it's the responsibility of the man to make her happy, which is impossible. So she'll get frustrated when she when that never comes to fruition. He'll get frustrated because he's doing everything that he could possibly think of doing, even everything that she says. If he did everything that she says that she wants, she still will not be happy because it's impossible. So he will get frustrated and resentful, which is going to end up causing great friction, ultimately. Okay. So what can what can men in particular do to find to first define and find this happiness? What, what do you suggest to me? Because I know you counsel uh, people regularly. What do you tell people they need to do? Well, first off is to realize that happiness is not to be attained anywhere outside of oneself. The source of happiness is not in the attainment of material things, it's not in the attainment of money, it's not in finding the right person. Right? And so we have to go into a self-exploration to identify who we are, to realize that we are divinity, and we go through a process of removing the layers of illusion about who it is that we are so that we can tap into the internal source of happiness. And so it's really a, a reprogramming process that we have to undergo. And that, you know, and that's what I would, when I'm counseling people, we go through basically that unveiling process. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then you it's reprogramming, right? You know, and, and removing those expectations. And so once we then can realize that we are responsible for our own happiness and then go into the the spiritual journey of identifying that source of happiness and connecting with that then we become liberated to the extent that we can now go forth and then seek to share happiness with someone who is on a similar journey, mm-hmm. who is also taking the, the steps to develop a level of self-awareness, self um, on the journey to self-enlightenment, so that then you can share that journey together and support each other in that journey. Then you can have a relationship. 
because it's about sharing happiness, not bringing happiness to someone else. Okay. Okay. So does that mean that I need to, you know, I, I need to quit my job? Does that mean I shouldn't travel anywhere? Does that mean I should give up, you know, a nice car and just take the bus? Like, I think a lot of people, you know, have this idea that, you know, in order to to do kind of some of the things you're talking about, that they have to live a particular way. Um, talk about that. That's an excellent question. So, you know, some people operate under the false impression that spirituality means that you can't enjoy the material world. That okay. we have to give up those things or you know some people even will feel like they need to go and live in a monastery or, or ashram or whatever um, and so that's kind of an extreme type thing but we are both spiritual beings and physical beings at the same time we are spiritual beings living in a physical realm so we are meant to experience both of those things, not one or the other, not one at the exclusion of the other. It's just really a matter of prioritization and recognition of the fact that we are spiritual and that everything in the physical realm comes out of spirit. So it's a matter of prioritization and perspective, right? But so it's not that we aren't supposed to enjoy the material realm and the, and the things that exist within it, is that we recognize what it is for what it is and don't become attached to it in that we begin to be eluded, deluded into thinking that those things are the source of, of happiness. When we realize that they are not, we can enjoy them, experience them, accumulate them, but we're not in, attaching with, to them the expectation that those things will bring happiness to, to us uh, from, a, from more than a temporary perspective. Okay. So you, you, you can still engage in the things in life you enjoy. You just go into it with the understanding that this isn't the source of happiness. This so, isn't the source of happiness, right. So what I own, how I dress, what I drive, where I travel to, those things in and of themselves are not the source of happiness. And they're not even reflective of me. Right. They're, they're not the sum, sum total of who I am. So if with that in mind, where is the source of happiness? How do you how do you how do you connect to that? The source of happiness is within. So it is, you know, about engaging in um, in our spiritual practices, such as meditation, which meditation is designed to help us to be able to reconnect with our with our true self, with our spirit being, by detaching, which is an important word which we need to explore, detaching from our thoughts, detaching with our identification. Uh, with our physical being, you know, so that we can reconnect okay. through that process by by stilling and slowing down the rate of thought, then it will 
bring us in alignment with the with divinity with our with our higher self it's thinking that is the primary barrier between who we really are and the illusory self or the ego so that we identify ourselves with and so as we you know begin to reconnect then we tap into that internal source of of joy we tap into that internal source of of peace so that we can be tranquil and joyful no matter where we are i think one of the things that you were talking about at the outset is that many people believe that happiness requires that we be able to be in a place where we can can travel throughout the world and experience different places but the reality of it is that wherever we go we bring ourselves mm-hmm. and so if we're not peaceful where we are now we're bringing ourselves with us so wherever we go if we're not peaceful where we are right now in the present moment we're going to bring that lack of peace with us if we're miserable at home we're going to be miserable wherever we go there's no place that we're going to be able to find peace outside of us there's no person that's going to be able to bring us peace and joy and happiness so it's not about going to some other land to find the right woman that's going to bring you happiness because happiness is internal now it's a the only distinction that I would make is that it's not the place that that we we go looking for a partner it's what we see in them right so now it may be that if you go to different lands that you might have people who are not as programmed into this material construct that we live in uh they haven't been programmed with all this illusion of attainment of happiness through the acquisition of material things through finding the right person you know we, next month is valentine's day and so all kinds of money is spent to buy things and take people places spend money on jewelry under the illusion that those things are going to bring love and happiness I mean all those things are are highly programmed. I think brother Jamal had posted something about uh surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. And surveillance capitalism is driven by the egoic needs for satisfaction. Right? And so they they are like parasites capitalizing on the illusion that the acquisition of material things and sensory pleasures is going to going to bring happiness and they make a, a lot of money on that and so to the extent that you leave the country and and go to places where people have not been so deeply programmed into that whole illusion then you might 
increase your chances of finding someone who you can work with, who is more introspective, who does take responsibility, who doesn't place upon you the expectation that you are to bring them happiness. Hmm. 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 Okay. Now you mentioned the word detachment or detaching. Um, talk a little bit about what that what that means. That's an excellent question. That is a a concept that can be very elusive and difficult for people to grasp. I recall that probably at least 25 years ago when I first heard the term from one of my teachers, our, our teacher, Brother Dadisi Sanyika, he first tried to educate me on developing attachment. I didn't grasp it then when he was trying to explain it to me because the way I related to it was um, like shutting myself down emotionally. That's how I interpret it. And right. that's how a lot of people uh, relate to it and process it. It's like they think that you know, you're shutting yourself down emotionally to where you're not experiencing emotions, but that's not detachment. Mm. That's like suppression, you know, which is harmful. So detachment is essentially withdrawing one's energy from it. Mm. Okay, and so that's why it's the practice of meditation is so important because one of the things that, one of the skills that we gain from the practice of meditation is the ability to detach because when we are in meditation we work to and I don't want to use the word work but instead our objective is to detach from thoughts mm -hmm. most people who get frustrated with trying to meditate become frustrated because they think that it is their objective to to make thoughts stop coming to to stop the thoughts okay right but when we if we try to actively stop our thoughts from coming we're giving energy to the thoughts which attracts them okay. and so a lot of people will get frustrated with meditation because as they're trying to stop themselves from thinking they get overwhelmed with thoughts and then they end up becoming frustrated and then they give up so the objective is not to try to stop thoughts from coming the objective is to just observe the thoughts and detach this mm -hmm. is a very important concept so we just absorb them we don't give them energy we notice them we don't take any ownership of it we don't personalize it we don't make them ours we don't feel anything about them we just notice that they exist but take no ownership of it don't analyze it just notice it and allow it to go in the same way that you know we just notice that there are clouds in the sky 
and but we don't detach any other meaning to it other than that so it sounds like you're saying that we're we're not our thoughts we're not our thoughts and our thoughts are not us and does that apply to emotions and like how did well, how far does that go it goes everywhere because our emotions are invariably tied to our thoughts so what if we whatever mood that we find ourselves in whatever emotional state that we find ourselves in is based upon what we're thinking at that given moment right and so if we find ourselves angry then just reflect upon what are you, what are you thinking about if you find yourself depressed what are you thinking about right and so okay. now if we then are able to recognize that the thoughts do not belong to us then we become empowered because we realize that just as we can with the remote control on as we're watching television if a program comes on that we don't like we can just grab the remote control and change the channel in the same way we can use the remote control of our consciousness to change the channel of our thoughts because mm-hmm. they're, they're, the thoughts in and of themselves don't have power we, they don't have power unless we give it to them right and we give it power by giving it energy by, by, by paying attention to it paying attention to it right you know but if we don't just don't pay any attention to it and just they're just thoughts they're not mine then they have no power over us so you know that's a distinction most people are controlled by their emotions they're controlled by their thoughts and because thoughts are random and have no connection to each other if we allow ourselves to be controlled by our thoughts and be controlled by our emotions then our life will end up being chaos well it's interesting you call it chaos because i think you know particularly in this culture we have in the west you know we're 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 told that happiness one is an emotion and two you have to you have to embrace emotion and live by emotion in hopes of even finding that happiness right even the advertisements we watch or really most of our media is tied to advertisement anyway but um it, it tells us that buying a product or living this lifestyle dressing a certain way going to certain places looking you know the all of these things that we associate with how we define ourselves you know is the path to happiness you know what i mean and so when you say that you know if anything i'm going to disassociate from my thoughts and my in my emotions i'm not going to invest any energy into them i'm going to i'm going to actually identify myself outside of those things that seems to go against what we're promoted to do at every moment in the day especially in terms of the media we, we we consume exactly see mm-hmm. the media is about control it's programming mm-hmm. right they call the people who decide what the content on television is and the content on radio programmers television programmers they're programming us they're programming our behavior 
you know, as I mentioned, brother Jamal posted that article or a YouTube video, which is very, very, very informative. And I encourage everyone to to watch that because um, it's surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism. Because all that is about is controlling behavior and predicting behavior. Because if they can control our behavior, they can manipulate us into buying what they want us to buy. Uh, remember Pokemon Go. Mm, okay. When Pokemon Go came out, the first thing that came to mind was that that was a social engineering experiment. It was more than that. It was a social engineering program. What, what did we observe people doing when they were playing Pokemon Go? I don't remember too much about that. What, what was it? Pokemon Go was basically a, a program game that people could download into their phones. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I remember that. All and right. Everyone was trying to find where the Pokemon was. Right. My so son was doing that. Yeah. Collect the Pokemons, right? Right. And so the Pokemon would show up at a park or a Pokemon would show up at a store. Right? Mm -hmm. People were so absorbed in Pokemon that they were just, they were oblivious to making any kind of decisions. They were going wherever Pokemon told them to go. And people were, people were going there. You would see crowds of people gathering wherever the programmers wanted them to go. Mm -hmm. So if they wanted them to go to a store and they had an advertisement for them to buy something or would send some subliminal message to them, they were making people go there and advertisers were paying the makers of Pokemon Go to get them to send people where they wanted them to send them to. All right. Now, how does that relate to what we're talking about? People were being controlled by their thoughts and their emotions because there were was external external stimuli that was influencing their thoughts and people were not paying attention to their thoughts people were not in control of their thoughts therefore someone else was be able to control their thoughts for them and because people lack any level of awareness of it people were being controlled now when we are able to detach Detachment helps us to develop a level of awareness so that we end up noticing. So if we're detaching from our thoughts, then we're not giving it energy and we're making it a point to not allow thoughts into our consciousness. Mm -hmm. That develops in us awareness so that when thoughts do enter into our consciousness, we become aware of it. Right. So then we can make a decision as to whether or not we want to accept that into our consciousness. If that benefits, does, does this thought benefit me 
or does it not? If not, detach from it and let it go. Or maybe this is something that I want, but the, the point is, is that we're making a conscious decision about it. Right? Okay. Now we, we are not making any conscious decisions. Now, thoughts again affect our emotions. And so if we are aware of the thoughts that we allow into our consciousness, then we're aware and in control of our emotions. We're in control of our thoughts. And so the when you talked about how society programs us into, into believing that we should follow our emotions and that we should um, uh, you know give energy to our thoughts and uh, allow our emotions to, to, to make our decisions. Some people even say that um, you know, we should empower our emotions in some nonsense like that. But that's backwards. And the reality is, is if we operate in that way, then we're, we are basically allowing ourselves to be controlled by, by things outside of us. Okay. And so the sequence should be the other way around. We should be in control of our thoughts. We should be in control of our emotions. And by us being in control of our thoughts and being in control of our emotions, then we are in control of our actions and we are in control of our circumstances. Because whatever we allow ourselves to think about, we create. What we think about, we bring about. So we are creating based upon what we're thinking about. So if somebody else is in control of what we're thinking about, then we're creating a reality for ourselves that we don't want. We're creating a reality that someone else wants for us. Okay. Well, we got about five more minutes uh, where we, I want to, you know, talk about this, but I, I, I think part of what, I can pull from what you're saying that I think, you know, will be helpful to a lot of people, particularly black males, is that you don't need to leave, you don't need to believe in this notion that, you know, whether it be, you know, how much you can attain or how much sex you can have or whatever, none of those things in and of themselves uh, are, are the source of, of one's happiness. Now, that's not to say that you, you can't travel, you can't have sex, you can't... I'm not saying none of that. I mean, I, you know, you enjoy life however you decide to do that. I think all I'm saying and all I'm, and what I'm hearing you say is that you can, you can do those things, but if you do them with an understanding of where happiness does and doesn't actually come from, that that, that changes how you carry yourself it changes your stress level it changes how you deal with the world because you're not waiting for those things to have the effect on you that you might have believed you might have been taught to believe they're supposed to have and right. you you don't have to rely on that you don't have to wait for that you can actually just be in the moment and and also you can also defend yourself from other people's expectations and assumptions you know what I mean? You don't have to. You, you don't have to re wait for other people's thoughts. You don't have to base your 
your sense of who you are on what other people think you can actually just be you can just be you don't have to be affected by anything that anyone says by anything anyone does you don't care what people think about you because that's not your problem <laughs> so like you said it becomes extremely liber liberating because you're not dependent upon anything outside of you to bring you happiness nor can anything outside of you affect whether you're happy or not it can't it doesn't you don't have to allow anything to affect you at all either positive or positively or negatively mm -hmm. you know and that's one of the the benefits of spirituality is is that we can just be and not be affected by anything unless we allow it mm -hmm. we become empowered mm-hmm mm -hmm. right and that in and of itself engage with you know you don't have to to, to allow anything uh, or anyone to do anything to change our state hmm. right and that in and of itself that realization is power unto itself absolutely so we can be at peace no matter what's going on around us we can be at peace no matter what other people do it doesn't have to affect us and we don't have to go into guilt about anyone else's state of being because we're not responsible for it mm. so the so and that in and of itself is a barrier to even shaming tactics or any of that because you don't you don't give that any energy right because i didn't make you mad that's under your control mm-hmm Mm -hmm. To other people's emotions are not your your they're not your fault they're not your they're not into your purview. Other not, people's <laughs> actions are other people's actions. That's right. You have nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. See, I think the way many of us have been socialized is that we have to take responsibility for other people's you know emotional and financial and so on and so forth well being, and we make ourselves responsible. And I see a lot of black men to the point of contemplating death, hold themselves accountable for such things. And I would like to see, um, I'd like to see us be able to let that go. Now we, we're gonna have to close out here, tell people where they can find you and find out more about what you do. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Sara, that's two words. So you'll see me. Um, you can reach out to me there. You can con connect with me on my, my page and uh, instant message if you want to reach out. Also, you can reach out to me on my website, which is www.sara-ra.org. If you would like to have a session with me, be able to talk to me, uh, Go to my website, again, www.sa-ra.org, and you can set up an appointment for some uh, free consultations. And if you want to go further, we can you know, make arrangements for, for, for consultations. Brother, Brother Dr. Hassan had asked me for some 
resources that I might be able to, to give you to assist you on your, your journey. And as I thought about it, I, I recognized that I could give people books and recommend books to read, but I don't think that it would be ultimately the best way to serve people because some of the books are going to require some extensive study and some, you know, some people aren't going to be able to grasp it. So the best way for me to be of service to people would be for me to be able to work with people directly to help people to be able to grasp these concepts because it, 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 I wasn't able to grasp it on my own and it took a long time. And so, but I have gotten to the point where I can help people grasp those things and be able to understand themselves better by, by working directly with me. And so, okay. That's the thing that I can recommend. So do, do please go to my, my website and, um, you know, set up something with me and cause I, I really, my purpose is to, is to help in the, in, in, in our awakening. Okay. Well, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for letting me interview you. Check out um, Sarah's book, Book of Light. You can check that out on Amazon if you're interested. Go to his website uh, and definitely check out his show every first and third uh, Tuesdays uh, here on innerlightradio.com. Uh, and uh, I will see you all very shortly. Remember, I'm broadcasting every week now, so uh, I will be on either Interlight or, or YouTube every other week. So check me out next Wednesday on YouTube on a live show. Same time, 5 p.m. Um, Pacific uh, on my YouTube channel. All right. To everybody out there, thanks for joining the Onyx Report. See you soon. Peace. Peace.